Amen. Church, it's so good to be with you this morning. If got, I could ask you to please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Quick question. Can anyone tell me how many chapters are there in the book of Jude? Only one. That's correct. Yeah. So church, I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning to set context for where we are going today and next week. It's about a three or four minute read. So read along with me in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible, we've got you covered. We'll have it on the screen. I'm going to come down and, and read it with you this morning. If you could put that up for us from verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their own dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they, destroyed, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, and wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, he's speaking to believers now, but you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the visions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And he concludes by saying, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Church, I had the privilege of going on a ministry trip in 2019 to the United Kingdom, to England specifically. And during that trip, we did a bit of sightseeing in and around London and different other cities located around the country. And if you've ever been there before yourself, you would have noticed that as you go through just about every major town or city, you have these magnificent cathedrals that tower over everything which have some of the finest architecture you've ever seen. It's absolutely breathtaking. These cathedrals are actually churches that were built between the 6th and 16th century AD, and most of them have become museums and heritage sites, where tourists can go through to admire some of the amazing detail that has gone into constructing these amazing wonders of human engineering. These churches are so big that they could literally seat hundreds, if not thousands, of people for church services weekly. But they're empty, and they're not being used as churches anymore. As I said, they are museums and heritage sites. The church that we attended when we were there was a church in Lincoln, and the congregation size was about 60 to 70 people. But according to some of the latest statistics, the average size of a church in the UK is only 27 people, and the percentage of the population that attend church has dropped from 11.8% back in 1980, which is already quite low, but to current statistics of around 3%. These uh, statistics show us that things are changing. There is a pastor from Scotland who was recently speaking at a church conference in Canada, and people were asking him during the break, why is it when we go to the UK that we see all these magnificent buildings, but nothing's happening in them? And church, he said something that, that really struck me. He said, just wait a little while because you're about to experience it. Just wait a little while because you are about to experience it. And I thought to myself, what is he saying here? What does he mean? He then proceeded to say, just wait a little while, because in every generation, there is a young shepherd boy that is willing to take on the giant of his generation and contend for the faith. And church, as I read the signs of the times, and if I pay attention to what's happening in our world and even in our own country, I don't think that it is far-fetched to say that the message of Jude to contend for the faith is a timely message. 
Indeed, it is an urgent message. It's not a matter of something that is out there on the horizon, and it is not the condemnation of a surrounding culture that knows nothing of the grace of God. It is simply a striking warning to the church if it begins to lose confidence in the truths of Scripture and the finished work of Christ. Now, we don't have to over-dramatize all of this, but we need to understand the urgency of what we're facing. And when I think about the word urgency, I think about the word emergency. And it reminds me of someone that's either in the medical field or in emergency services, like a, a fireman, a policeman, a paramedic, or an ER nurse. Because in that line of work, you are constantly in like a state of emergency, you are on urgent alert because at any moment and in a split second, you may have to deal with a human life that is threatening to become a human corpse. That situation requires urgent attention. And I think that's what Judy is saying here. He says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Judas saying, listen, even though I was hoping to write to you about more leisurely things, about more generic things, I've actually decided to drop everything because what is needed is a matter of urgent necessity. In other words, he is sounding a wake-up call to a church that has fallen asleep. And in its sleepiness, it has inadvertently, not purposefully, allowed certain people to creep in, bringing with them an evil agenda. And he's actually pointing out how easy it is to fall into a state of slumber, given that we live in a fallen world, and that we are under the jurisdiction in so many ways of the prince of the power of the air. It's not difficult to realize that a church who loses its nerve or a pastor who loses his nerve will suddenly look like the armies of Israel standing there on the sidelines, completely vulnerable, unable, and unwilling to take on the challenge. And saying, is there anybody? Is there anybody? Perhaps a young shepherd boy of Israel who will step forward and take on the challenge of this giant who defies the armies of the living God. Is there someone that is willing to contend for the faith? Now, when Jude sounds this appeal, he's not setting aside his original plan. He's just changing his tactic somewhat. He's still dealing with the wonder of salvation and of the importance of it. And that's why he started the, the chapter in the way that he did. So that they would know that these things are true of them. That they are the beloved of God and that God keeps them, right? And it is in the context of the awareness of the sovereign keeping power of God and his affection for those to whom he writes, that he makes this appeal. He is the writer, and they as the readers are partners in a common faith. But it's not a gentle suggestion. It is actually an urgent cry. And listen, church, he recognizes that it's going to take backbone to respond to the appeal. In fact, the word contend is the Greek word epagonizomai, and it means to contend for, it means to struggle for, it means to fight for. 
It is very clear by this word that strong exertion, commitment, and agonizing is involved. And so when he is encouraging them in this way, he's, he is recognizing that at the same time, the fight that they're going to have as they stand up for the truth of the gospel and the slings and arrows of misfortune that will come against them. He's realizing that this is not a small commitment, but, but it is a worthy one. And church, as he's encouraging them, he's not encouraging them to contend for how they believe in what they believe, but to contend for the faith. The faith. And what faith am I talking about? Just to have it in clear view for us this morning, the Apostle Paul says it very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. As we know, Paul then speaks about all the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection of Jesus and makes an extremely watertight argument about the resurrection and why there is only one way to salvation. And so get this, church, when Jude speaks about the faith, what he is saying is, I want you to make sure, as of first importance, that you are contending for an objective body of truth. Not some subjective body of truth, but an objective body of truth, a body of truth that is ours by way of revelation. It is unchanged and it is unchanging, right? It has been settled once and for all, and it has been entrusted to the saints. And you see, church, it's very important that we get this, because the apostolic gospel is not some loose association of ideas. It's not something that we are just free to piece together to suit the time we're living in or to suit the culture, the context of the culture, or to suit our own aspirations and designs about life. It's not a concept for us to imagine or to be toyed with and, and meddled with in any way at all. So to speak, it is what it is. It is what it is. We are not free to reconfigure it or to accommodate ourselves to people who flat out deny the Bible. We are not permitted to turn aside from the clarity of the words of Jesus in order to make people feel more comfortable by the fact that they don't like the words of Jesus. Amen, somebody. Thomas Manton in the 17th century, speaking of the faith, said, it's not a thing invented, but rather given. It's not found out by us, but delivered by God himself. And it is delivered into our custody that we may keep it for eternity. Church, there is only one gospel, the gospel of God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus. But of course, the culture says, surely not. Surely not, because, you know, I feel differently to what the gospel says, and surely not, because I've been born this way. You know, pluralism that was strongly pushed at the beginning of the century by the general faith community seemed like such a great opportunity for different faiths to come together. Even some ch uh, churches thought it was a good idea, because it seemed like people would then be prepared 
to expose themselves to every idea under the sun, including Christianity. So the thinking was we can have a compartment for atheism, we can have a compartment for Hinduism, we can have a compartment for Islam, a compartment for Christianity, a compartment for humanism, and whatever else you want to throw into the mix. And we as Christians will just take our place in the midst of that and, and see how we do. Well, quick question, how do we do in this pluralistic melting pot of religions where everybody is supposed to be so tolerant of each other's views? We don't do too good if we are actually prepared to contend for the faith. Because church, let me tell you something, nobody's remotely worried about you wearing a t-shirt that says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They can live with that. But they can't live with the rest of the verse that says, no one comes to the Father but by me. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a, a video circulating on YouTube a month or two back where a man in the Mall of America was told to take off his T-shirt that said Jesus is the only way and that religions cannot coexist. He was told that he was soliciting religious beliefs that would offend other patrons. So if he wanted to shop there, he would have to take off his T-shirt, otherwise he would be forcibly removed. When you think about that, that wasn't the case even five years ago, right? That's why the argument of I have my truth and you have your truth doesn't work anymore because they can't handle our truth. Pluralism only applies if you are not a Bible-believing Christian. And listen up, everyone. The giant of this generation that wants to defy the armies of the living God is not out there somewhere anymore on the horizon or even further. It's heading straight toward us. Because it doesn't like what we stand for, doesn't like what we say, if we are actually willing to contend for the faith. And you know, when you think about this church, why are we so surprised that the wind is now blowing firmly in our faces if we stand, if we stand for the truth of the gospel? We shouldn't be surprised by that. Because Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We shouldn't be alarmed by that. What we ought to be really concerned about, and this is important because many of you listen to a number of different pastors online, what we should really be concerned about is when our pastors and other spiritual leaders start to equivocate or to sit on the fence on certain issues that we are facing in our culture that are in direct opposition to the gospel. When those who have been sent as prophets in the midst of the land begin in some way or another to lose their spine, when they begin to collapse in sound and uncertain noise, that's really concerning. Because how then would anyone know to go out to battle? They begin to say things like, you know, God's grace is so all-encompassing that He even closes His eyes to everything that we want to do. And what they do is this. They pervert the gospel call to sinners to come as you are by saying, and you may stay as you are. In other words, what they do is they take the gospel and an expression of the gospel and use it as a smokescreen for immorality. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, says, the idea that God loves you just the way you are is actually not true. Because God says that of only one person after Adam, namely Jesus. 
You see, God doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you in spite of who you are. These people will say, no, no, no. God loves all of us just as we are. Everything goes. Shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer comes back from them, yes. You see, too many so-called men and women of God today who stand at the pulpit are tampering with the truth and giving in to progressive culture. And any kind of filling with the truth of the gospel calls for a robust defense of the faith. And I'll say it again, it has to happen in every generation. Which means, church, that if we are going to contend for the faith, we have to be prepared to say that it is the scriptures which creates the church. Not the church that's submitting to the culture which creates the scripture. It means that we stand underneath the scriptures. That we bow at the feet of Christ. And anything that circumvents that kind of wholehearted and singular devotion needs to be challenged. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The God Who Is There, which was written back in 1968, says, The Christian must understand what confronts him antagonistically in his own moment of history. Otherwise, he simply becomes a useless museum piece and not a living warrior for Jesus Christ. We must understand that the world spirit does not always take the same form, so the Christian must resist the spirit of the world and the form it takes in his own generation. Martin Luther said something similar when he said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, listen to this, except precisely the little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at that point. Powerful statements, right? Church, for those of you who have been with us in our study on the book of Revelation, in our series, Revealing Jesus, if you're like me, you would have really been intrigued by how the different churches in Asia Minor that Jesus dictates a letter to, how they fall into a line or a category of church history. But more specifically, what's really intriguing is how in each of those church ages, there were those that were willing to contend for the faith. In every generation, there's been a battle for the Bible, Right? There's been a battle for the Bible in every generation, and it will continue until Jesus returns. The battle for the Bible remains, but let me ask you this question. Where has it been for today? Where is it? Where is the epicenter of people saying that we cannot possibly submit to this Bible? Do you want to know where? In the matter of human sexuality in the matter of gender, in the matter of the binary distinction between what a man is and what a woman is. That is where the battle for the Bible stands in such a way against the culture, and this is largely where the capitulation and falling away is taking place. Whether it's the bishops of the Church of England that are now apologizing to the alphabet community for previously condemning same-sex unions, or well-known American megachurch pastors who are saying very much the same thing. This is largely where the falling away is taking place. 
in the matter of human sexuality, in the matter of gender, in the matter of the binary distinction between what a man is and what a woman is, in the matter of a culture that is transitioning. That's where the battle for the Bible is. And church, I'll say it again. We are not permitted to turn aside from the clarity of the words of Jesus in order to make people feel more comfortable by the fact that they don't like the words of Jesus. And why is this such an important battle for us to engage in? And why is it so important or so dangerous for pastors to be flaky when it comes to the Scriptures? Because an objective body of truth matters, right? The faith matters. And not only does it matter, church, it saves people from eternal damnation. This saves people from eternal damnation. Can I get an amen to that? Just think about this scenario for a moment as an example. In air traffic control, if you're flying into a certain location, you don't want to hear somebody from the cockpit speaking to someone at ground control, and ground control says, descend and maintain 3,000 feet, and the pilot says, what do you mean by 3,000 feet? At that point, you want to have a parachute and, and make a jump for it, right? Because listen, unless we are absolutely agreeing on what 3,000 feet is, there is no way we can function. That's why Greenwich Mean Time, whether you like it or not, is the standard for pilots throughout the entire world 24 hours a day. Why? Because there has to be an absolute objective standard from which we work. And so guess what? We're stuck with this truth. We are stuck with this. I'm okay with that, but we're stuck with this. And when we're dealing with the matter of gender and sexuality, when we are dealing with our homosexual friends, we say, listen, I like you, and I want you to like me. Right? But there's one thing that you need to know before we engage in conversation and strengthen our friendship. And they'll ask you, well, well what is it? You say, listen, I have a small problem. Well, what's your problem, Ryan? I actually believe this. I'm stuck with this. I'm not allowed to read, write this to make you feel good. It says what it says. I am stuck with it. Will you, will you allow me to stick with it so that when we have a conversation, we know where it goes? But again, some of those that have crept into the church, even leaders that are shepherding large congregations, are singing a very different tune because they are more concerned about being liked and growing their church than they are about speaking the, uh, the truth. It was Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, that said, if you just set out to be liked, you'll be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would have achieved nothing. It's a powerful statement, that. And so, church, we have to engage. We have to contend for the faith, even if it looks like we are the ones that are swimming against the tide. C.S. Lewis once said, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. And he's right, you know, because the world thinks that we're the crazy ones. They think that we've lost our minds because we don't embrace the transitioning of the culture and because we don't celebrate the stuff that is happening in our culture right now. He's right. We are running away from the cliff and we want to take as many people 
who are on the verge of falling off the cliff with us. Amen? And that's why, church, when we contend for the faith, we need to, as Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. Dr. McCuddy spoke about that this weekend, right? Virtue. Remember virtue? How important the virtues are when we are sharing the faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right? Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And that's why I'm so excited that we are going on this journey together with Apologetics SA, Families of Virtue, so that we can learn how to correctly defend our faith and win people over, but at the same time to have the virtue to be able to do it with gentleness and respect. But it is a battle. It is something that we need to contend for. Church today is really a foundation for where we are going next week because I want to speak in detail about a transitioning culture, a culture that we find ourselves in and how we correctly engage in that culture. But it is important for us to understand why we need to engage and contend for an objective body of truth. Why? Because it matters, right? The truth matters. The faith matters. The finished work of Jesus Christ matters. And my question to you in closing, if someone came up to you and said, why does it look like the church is falling apart? Why does it seem like Christians are, are so fragmented and divided? Why is it that not many people church go to church anymore or that churches around the world are, are starting to empty? And why aren't Christians really impacting those around them? Why aren't they changing societies? And why does it seem like Satan's evil agenda to pervert the world is actually succeeding? Would you say, well, I don't know. That's not my problem. Or would you say, just wait a little while because you are about to experience it. Just wait a little while because in every generation there is a young shepherd boy that is willing to take on the giant of his generation and contend for the faith. And church, when I say young shepherd boy, I'm just using that symbolically for every willing believer of every age, male or female, that is willing to stand up and struggle for and fight for and get on their knees for and agonize for the faith. This is the appeal that Jude is making here to the saints of every generation. Is there someone that is willing to stand and contend for the faith? And when you go home today, and as you get busy throughout this week, and as you think about this appeal, could it be you that says yes? Could it be you that says, yes, I will contend for the faith? Could it be me? Could it be us as a church that says we will resist the spirit of the world and the form it takes in our own generation? Could it be us that says we are willing to contend for the Bible in our own moment of history so that the next generation will be positioned to do the same. Amen? 
It says in Psalm chapter 71, verses 17 to 18, it says, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me, listen to this church, until I declare your strength to this generation, until I declare your power to everyone who is to come. So church, my call to you is, could it be you? Could it be us? Could it be me that is willing to stand against this giant of the generation that is heading straight toward us? I want you to think about that this week as you go about your business. Because God is calling us to take on and to contend for the faith in our own moment of history. Let's pray together. Could the worship team please come up? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word today. We want to thank you for your truth that sets us free, but also your, your truth that sets us into motion. Lord, we want to represent you correctly in our own moment of history. So Lord, equip us and enable us to contend for the faith and face the giant that has positioned itself against the gospel in our own generation. Lord, we realize that we cannot do this without you. But today we put up our hands and we commit to contend for the faith, no matter what the enemy throws back at us. Lord, always keep our hearts pure as we stand for the truth of the gospel in any way, knowing that it is not to prove someone else wrong, but to bring them to the knowledge of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, spirit, soul, and body, for the work that you've called us to and may our lives be a testimony of the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints of every generation. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen and Amen.